0: We'll read our text here this evening, we'll pray, and then we'll hop into it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that we get to spend time this evening examining your word. Uh, We want to lift your name on high through our faithfulness to the text and also through our response to it. So would you help us this evening, work in our hearts, and we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. When my sister was younger, she would sleepwalk. Now, I I don't know any of this personally from experience because I wasn't born yet, but when she was five or six, she would sleepwalk fairly often. And typically, when someone sleepwalks, it's not a huge deal. They just putter about in their own bedroom. Someone hears them, tells them to go back to sleep, and they do. They wake up the next morning, they don't have a clue that any of this happened. And that was the case for my sister most of the time. But there was one night when my parents heard a rattling on the door downstairs. And so my dad runs downstairs quickly thinking there's an intruder or something like that. But what he sees is is almost as horrifying. It's his six-year-old daughter trying to get out into the street at 2 a.m., and for my dad, the, the thought of this his daughter getting into the street in the pitch black while blissfully unaware that any of this was happening was, was absolutely horrifying. See, my, my sister was completely unaware of the danger that she was in. And you could say that her sleepwalking put her in a stupor. She had no idea of the dangers around her. And, and often being in the sleepwalk or this, this stupor is harmless But the dangers of living perpetually in this type of stupor are far too severe to ignore. And in our text this evening, Revelation 3, we see almost an entire church walking in a spiritual stupor. They're ignorant of where they're going, totally unaware of the dangers that they are walking toward. And the thing is, the church at Sardis did not appear to be in a stupor, they actually appeared to be thriving. And just like you might be able to do, Sardis was able to appear to have a thriving faith while actually living in a spiritual stupor. But we see in this text that Jesus condemns this life of a spiritual stupor that you must overcome by walking worthily. And that's what we're going to see in just three points, how Christ condemns walking in a spiritual stupor. And point one comes very, very quickly here. Verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, what we're going to see is that Jesus condemns a spiritual stupor after he personally examines. So we should walk worthily. Many of you will know that in Revelation 2 and in chapter 3, Jesus examines seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And Sardis is actually the only one that's in this type of spiritual stupor. And they have much in common with another church that's in chapter 2. The church called Ephesus. And in your Bible, I might say, the loveless church. Christ had a lot of good things to say about Ephesus, but there was one big blemish. It's that they forgot their love and their zeal for Christ. Their service was devoid of love. And we don't have the future of that church. We don't see what it looks like in the coming years after this, but if I had to guess, I would say Sardis is the end result of a church like Ephesus. When you don't have this love, what happens? You start to walk in a spiritual stupor. If their service is only self-motivated rather than motivated by love, then they're going to end up like Sardis. Sardis is the final stage of the church at Ephesus. They appear alive from the outside, but they don't know why they do what they do. And slowly the moral fiber of this church erodes, and it leaves the church filled with inattentiveness and wickedness, devoid of a love for their Savior. And how do we know that Sardis is in a spiritual stupor? It's because Christ himself searches or examines this church. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Christ is searching the church here. This image of the, the seven stars and the seven lampstands. These are interpreted for us back in Revelation chapter one. The lamp stands are these seven churches, and the stars are the pastors or the messengers of these churches. Then here in Revelation 3. Jesus reminds the church at Sardis, he holds this church in his hand. And it's as if Christ has picked up this church in his hands, and he's viewing it from every possible angle, like like a jeweler examining a diamond, looking at all the facets, looking for blemishes. But beyond holding and examining this church, his spirit actually indwells the church. He doesn't only search the church from the outside, but he he goes deeper and searches the church from the inside out. So because Christ searches the church, he knows the state of the church. Look at the second half of this verse. I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. But Because Christ studies the church, he knows the church. And this, I find, is a really sobering reality. Christ doesn't only know the state of my personal life, but he knows the state of this church and how my actions affect this church. Your actions, my actions, they affect Christ's perceptions of this church as a whole. Just as Israel was judged corporately for their sin, so the church can be judged corporately for its sin as well. And this church from the outside looked very healthy, vibrant. Its name stood above the rest in the area. But Christ looked deeper than this reputation, and he says, I see your works. And the works of Sardis revealed it's not nearly as vibrant as it appeared. In fact, it was close to death. And this is where we get the idea of a spiritual stupor. The church was living but it was on the brink of death it's almost as if this church has gone in for surgery wheeled in on the cart the anesthesiologist has administered the sedative and then the church's life is, is hanging in the balance will they regain consciousness or not they're in this comatose state a stupor and while technically they are alive the body appears awfully lifeless and this isn't a baseless accusation. Christ has personally examined, studied this church, and found their life to be hanging in the balance. And Jesus condemns their spiritual stupor, but he also shows the depths of this problem. But as he does this, along the way, he reveals the remedy for those who are living in spiritual stupor. So Jesus condemns after a personal evaluation but he condemns spiritual stupor because it leads to stagnation or decay. Jesus condemns spiritual stupor because of decay. Look with me in verse 2. This is what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for I have found your works for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. The overwhelming problem with living in a spiritual stupor is that it leads to decay. And there are four commands here, with one that really ties the, the sets together. We have be watchful. Strengthen, remember, and repent. And they reveal that this church's negligence has started this awful process of decay. So let's look at the first command. Be watchful. The command to watch reveals inattention. It reveals inattention. The church was unaware of the dangers that its spiritual stupor brought, just like the city of Sardis had been unaware twice in its history. See, Sardis sat atop this impenetrable acropolis. It it towered over the surrounding countryside, casted its shadow deep into the valleys, even when its enemies surrounded it, almost flaunting its security. But twice in its history, it was conquered. Protected on three sides by a wall and a sheer cliff face on the other, but still, twice in its history, it was conquered. Both of the times were because of inattention. The first overthrow occurred when Cyrus attacked the city. This is the Cyrus that Daniel served under in the Old Testament. And Cyrus proclaimed to his troops that whoever was the first man to stand on top of the wall, he was going to give that man riches and wealth and power and authority. And so all of his soldiers went out searching for a way to get atop this wall. There was this one man, Heroides, and he resolved that he was going to attack this city and get on that wall where no other man stood which is probably a good idea, because if you get on the wall where other people stand, you're not going to stand there for long, and those riches and authority and wealth don't do you a great deal of good when you're dead. So he looks, where is this wall not heavily guarded? And one night, as he's watching the wall very carefully on the side where the cliff is, he sees a Lydian soldier drop his helmet from the parapet, and then very skillfully climb down this sheer cliff face, and then nimbly go back up again. And Heroides knew that he had just struck gold. And so the next morning, before the sun came up, Heroides carefully scales the cliff, and his fellow soldiers follow after him, and they attack the city where no one expected. And Sardis fell because it did not pay attention. The second fall, 300 years later, the exact same mistake. The attacking army saw this group of birds on the wall right above the cliff face, and they inferred that if there were birds there, there couldn't be guards there. And so they carefully study and plot this map out, see how they can get up the cliff face, and the Persians scaled the cliff and attacked Sardis from the, the soft underbelly where it wasn't expected. Sardis had a problem with inattention, but the church was no different. They felt secure in their position, and that security led to an inattentiveness and decay. And I wonder what complacency and sin creeps into your life, and thus not just into your life but into the church as well because you are inattentive to your spiritual state. If you do not carefully watch your life and watch the state of the church, all kinds of impurities can creep in unnoticed. Jesus commands this church to watch, but he also commands this church to strengthen. And the command to strengthen reveals unidentified weakness. The command to strengthen reveals unidentified weakness in the church. See, all that Sardis needed to do to strengthen the wall and fortify their city to make it safe from attack on that cliff face was put a couple of guards there. There's not a whole lot you can do to defend yourself when you're using both your hands and your feet to climb. If it had done this, it would have been unconquerable, but Sardis allowed the cliff face, what they thought was their greatest strength, to become their greatest weakness. Because they viewed it as a strength, they didn't look to improve their weaknesses. And like Sardis, it's very easy for us to identify our strengths, even spiritual strengths. But when you focus on those, your weaknesses often go unaddressed. This is the person who pursues sanctification in some areas of life, but allows others to go completely unchecked. He has discernment, but he lacks patience. She is hospitable, but she lacks gratitude. That family is generous, but they're filled with arrogance. And Jesus commands those who are on the brink of total decay to strengthen those areas of weakness. You must not applaud yourself as you grow in humility while allowing your laziness to go unchecked. See, a, a healthy body always strengthens itself. For a body that's living, when you bruise your knee, the cells work together to repair. That doesn't happen when a, on a corpse. In winter, you You trim back your trees so the branches don't fall on the roof. And guess what? Spring comes around and they're even three, four feet longer and you have to do it again. Why? Because it's connected to the root. It's not decaying. It's alive. But when there's not repair, no strengthening, that means there's a decay that reveals an impending lifelessness. And when our church is proud of a a kid's ministry, evangelism can fall to the wayside. Or if we applaud our missions focus, we can neglect those from our church who are lonely, forsake the ministry of encouragement. But Christ's command here to strengthen rather than to applaud is very poignant. When individuals in the church at large are so content with their strengths that they forget to strengthen their weaknesses, Decay has already begun." Unlike many people, I actually, I won't say I enjoy going to the dentist, but I find it at least entertaining. The the dentist I grew up going to back home in Greenville, they always had this relaxing nature channel on, the TV that slid all the way over your head, and the hygienist would be peeking over as she probes around and asks questions that you can't answer because your mouth is full of metal. And I liked most of that process, apart from one thing. They do it differently now, but the way they used to do it, I could not stand. It was the fluoride treatment. They fill up this this tray of of fluoride that's supposed to fit around your teeth, and they place it on your teeth, put a suction tube back in there so that you don't gag, and then they leave you for like six hours there. But just like throwing a turkey into a fryer with too much oil, when that tray is filled with fluoride and you bite down, it doesn't stay in the tray. And it doesn't matter where they put that suction tube, about 95% of it's going down your throat. And you're sitting there completely helpless, just writhing on the chair because of this, this terrible taste of the fluoride. But do you know why they treat your teeth with fluoride? Well, I mean, for me, they did it because they didn't floss. But typically, <laughs> they treat your teeth with fluoride Because they're strengthening your enamel. They are fighting decay. You might not be experiencing any decay in your physical body, but Christ is even more concerned with decay in your spiritual life. When your life is spiritually decaying, Christ says, strengthen the areas where you are weak. This means we we should regularly pray that the Spirit would, would open our eyes to any blindnesses or weak spots, sins in our lives that we are unaware of. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount not to concern ourselves with the speck in someone else's eye, but to take the log out of our eye. Well, unfortunately, even though it might be a log in our eye, we're often blissfully unaware that it's there. So this might mean asking your spouse, your friend, your children, if there are any areas in your life where they see weakness, where they see sin. Sin that you're completely oblivious to because Christ desires for you to expose those sins and then strengthen those areas of weakness. And that's what it means to walk worthy. Thirdly, the command to remember reveals forgetfulness. Look in verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Christ condemns this church because of its inattention, and because of its unidentified weaknesses, but also because of its forgetfulness. And this is the only way to fix this dire state of decay. This spiritual stupor that Sardis was in, the only way to fix it was through remembering the original message of this gospel. Remember what you have seen and heard. This this isn't way into the future after Christ's ministry. Some of these people had probably seen the resurrected Christ. This is only about 40 years later. See and remember what you have seen and heard. Go back to the basics of your faith, the basics of your belief. Jumpstart your spiritual life again. Because when you forget the basis for your faith, there's no root. And without a root, the only option is decay. So to come back from spiritual stupor, Christ reminds us we need to remember the core of the gospel. Go back to the basis of our faith. And restore the root so that our spiritual walk can grow and flourish once again. And the last command that reveals a K, decay is the command to repent. Now, we only repent because there's sinfulness. And th- there's a word in between remember and repent. And it's this this linking command to hold fast. It's this transition between the verses. The Christian who's in a stupor needs to hold fast to the basics of their faith. And doing this requires going back to what you did at the start of your faith. Responding with repentance. See, Christ doesn't let the church off the hook here. He doesn't just call this inattention. He doesn't just call it weakness. He doesn't just call it forgetfulness. No, he calls it what it really is. He says, it's sin. There would be no need to repent if there was not sin. But Christ's examination came back and it revealed sin. And it was everywhere. Spiritual stupor and decay are always linked to sin. And your sin when you're in a spiritual stupor might not be inattention or forgetfulness or unidentified weaknesses, but it always demands repentance. And now we ask the important question Why? Why does Christ go from all of these commands be watchful, strengthen, remember? repent why does he do that and then go straight into a severe warning because this is what he says therefore if you will not watch i will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour i will come upon you that's what's happening in the second half of this verse he says if you will not and then he shows that something severe will happen christ knew the dire state of this church at sardis And unfortunately, he did not anticipate that they would take this charge seriously. And Christ is is mercifully shaking this church, trying to get them to wake up, that if they did not repent, if they didn't watch, then the Lord's coming would be a total surprise to them. Like a thief in the night, it would be completely unexpected and have terrible consequences for them. Because when you have sunken so deep into a spiritual stupor that a call to repentance doesn't wake you, then Christ mercifully, like he is here in this passage, reminds you that judgment will come. Wake up from the stupor because judgment is coming. But as dire as the condition of this church in Sardis was, there were still a few, and they were a few, who were faithful to their Lord. In the last few verses, Jesus highlights these faithful believers and he lets the actions of those believers serve as a further condemnation of a spiritual stupor. Jesus condemns spiritual stupor by contrasting the faithful so we should walk worthy. This is what he says in Revelation 3 verse 4. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. As Jesus continues his evaluation of the church at Sardis, he turns his attention to those who are pure. Why? Because their purity condemns those in a spiritual stupor. And this happens in two ways. The first way is that purity exposes filthiness. The purity of these faithful believers exposed the filthiness of those who were in a spiritual stupor. And there's this image here of filthy garments. Those who are faithful have spotless garments. And, th- and there's actually a promise for them in this, in this text. It says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus will give them totally pure garments in the end so that they can walk with him. And this stands in stark contrast with the majority of those in, S- in Sardis. Their, ma- their garments were stained, corrupted by their sin. Much of, what, much of the sin Completely unaware of, yet again, Jesus identifies the problem at this church and he gives them an opportunity to repent by exposing filthiness as he highlights purity. When I worked in construction, we mostly did remodeling work, and I, I still don't know why why Dave hired me as a high schooler who knew nothing about construction. But I do remember several stories. We we were working for this lady remodeling her kitchen, and she told Dave that she wanted a countertop that was easy to clean. Now, easy to clean means very different things to different people. So Dave started suggesting all these different materials that we could put on the counter that would be easy to wipe down. He's listing them all off, and he's going and going, and she's shooting that one down, and that one down, and that one down, and that one down. And then finally she goes, no, no, no. I don't want something easy to wipe down. I want something that I know when to wipe down. She didn't want a material that was easy to clean. No, she wanted to be able to clearly see the dirt. Not me. I, I don't want to clearly see the dirt. But she wanted to clearly see this dirt. She wanted to counter almost pure white so that she, she, she could a- attack it and annihilate it with the disinfectant spray. Purity... Of a white counter exposes the filthiness. When something is pure, it is much easier to spot when filthiness is corrupting it. So this means that your life should be characterized by purity because one, when when your life is pure, it's easier to see when there is a corrupting influence intruding into your heart. But more than that, when your life is pure, it exposes sin in the hearts of others. Now this isn't a, a type of, of exposing that goes around trying to catch people in the act and rip back the curtain. But this type of exposing happens by your testimony and your encouragement and your conversations. And it reveals sins in the hearts of others that they might not have been aware of or that they didn't realize the dangers of. Your life of purity should expose filthiness that other believers around you don't immediately see. So when you interact with your grandchild and they see you respond to a frustrating circumstance with patience or kindness, it reveals their own selfishness and immaturity. When you're with your spouse and you respond to their anger with with gentleness, you reveal their sin. See, this is the type of, of peaceful exposing of sin that Christ has called you to. And this is what it means to walk worthy. But we see a second thing that purity does. One, it exposes sin or filthiness. But purity also indicates a secure faith. A secure faith. Look in verse 5. So what Christ says. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This type of purity indicates that the faith of these undefiled believers had was secure. And we know this because of the promise that Jesus gives them. He says, I will not blot out his name. But this promise is actually a little bit confusing. So confusing so I actually asked one of my professors about it for a class. And instead of answering my question, he turned it into an assignment. Entirely unhelpful. But what are we to make of this promise here? I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And the book of life here is this record read at the end of time and it contains, contains the names of those who are redeemed. I will not blot his name out of that book. Typically, the way we understand promises will lead us to this conclusion. If purity, if this overcoming faith Leads to not having my name blotted out, then impurity would mean my name could be blotted out, but we know that 's not the case from the rest of scripture because we know that those who Christ calls he, he keeps if he 's called you and you 're in Christ, your salvation is secure in Romans eight chapter or verse thirty Paul writes. Whom he predestined, those he also called, whom he called, those he justified, and whom he justified, those he glorified. In other words, if you're justified by faith, then you will be glorified. There there are no dropouts in the Christian faith. Revelation 13.8 puts it this way. All who dwell on earth will worship him. That's the Antichrist. The people worshiping the Antichrist whose names have not been written in the book of life. The only people who will worship the Antichrist are those who are not in the book of life. So this passage is is beautifully holding this tension. If my name can't be taken out of the book of life, then why is Christ saying that this won't happen if I'm pure? It's because this passage is holding this tension of human responsibility and, and God's sovereignty. On the one hand, you you must overcome. You must walk worthy. Yet God says if you are in the book, then you will overcome. This promise of unquestionable security because of Christ's purchase of your soul calls you to overcome. And while you are completely secure in Christ, those in Christ cannot content themselves in lives of spiritual stupor. They walk worthily, because they want to please their master and this type of purity a life that overcomes because of a a genuine faith a spotless life that type of purity reveals the security that christ speaks of here your purity proves that you are in the book of life and you will not you cannot be expunged from that book So the church at Sardis appeared to be thriving. They were actually living in a spiritual stupor. And Christ, throughout this passage, condemns that type of life, a life that is unaware of what is going on around it, the sins that are within it. And instead, he calls us to walk worthy. He could condemn this type of spiritual stupor because he he personally examines your life and the life that is within the church And he condemns this type of stupor because it leads to decay. And he desires his church not to decay, but to be faithful and pure and to produce fruit. So this week, will you look for areas of sin in your life, areas where you need to grow, and will you allow your purity to gently prod others to live this same type of life of purity as well? That is what it means to walk worthy and to overcome. And Christ concludes by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me this evening? Father, once again, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful that like a mirror, it reveals who we truly are, showing us things that we hadn't seen before, with the utmost precision, it cuts apart our heart, showing us the areas where we need to change. But beyond that, it shows us how we can be enabled to change. So Lord, would you help us as we go our ways this week to seek the grace that you offer through the power of your spirit that we would constantly be changing, seeking to purify our lives, not contending ourselves with our strengths, but seeking to grow and show others that they can grow as well. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.